you guys could uh, give a welcome to, to Chris Wilcox. And, um, you know, it's, it's fitting that, that he's here on Easter Sunday. He actually shared on Easter a couple of years ago a totally different, a totally different thing that he was talking about than he's going to be talking about today. But today is Easter, and today is where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the victory that Christ had over the grave, and um, that, that through Christ we have eternal life. And, um, and so there's just this victory, there's this hope, there's this promise, and, um, and, and Chris is going to share you uh, what God's been up to in his life. And uh, it's just a, it's a great story of hope. It's a perfect story for today. So we're very excited. And if you guys could give him uh, your undivided attention for a couple minutes, that would be cool. Thanks, Dave. That was actually last Easter. I was up here, and uh, I'm hoping next Easter to get the whole sermon. So anyway, uh, happy Easter, everybody. You know, uh, two years ago, I weighed 451 pounds. This morning, I weighed 260 that's a loss of 191 pounds. I feel like I should tuck it in a little bit. Uh, you know, looking back on those days when I was 451 pounds, I don't really like what I saw. You know, I had tried every single kind of fad diet, every medically monitored diet. I had got psychiatric counseling. I'd done Overeaters Anonymous. I even had a gastric bypass surgery. Look at that guy, man. And... After a couple of years of that gastric bypass surgery, I ate through that. I'd lost 140 pounds, and I put 100 back on. And I just didn't like where I was going. Well, come along uh, March of 2010, I saw that The Biggest Loser was going to be having auditions at the Washington Convention Center. And at that time, I was an aspiring stand-up comedian. So I said, hey, that'd be a good way to get famous, get my comedy career on track. So I went. When I got there, I was a little disappointed because there were over 1,000 people there trying to get a little help getting their weight under control. I was also disappointed because I saw that the auditions were on the second floor. <laughs> Took me a half an hour to get on the elevator to get up there, you know. And that's because that show pays a quarter of a million dollars, but nobody was willing to walk a flight of stairs for a chance at that brass ring. I think we found the problem. So anyway, I, uh, I auditioned, and when I, when I went in there, there's a 1,000 people, so I had to do something to stand out. So I jumped up front in that big room, and I grabbed a microphone, and I started telling some of my humor, some of my comedy. And uh, it was pretty cool. Most of my jokes were fat man jokes. And talk about your captive audience, man. They were perfect for me, and that was a big hit. And uh, when I got home, I got a call from Three Ball Productions, and they said, Mr. Wilcox, you're very funny. We'd like you to come back as one of 12 out of 1,000 for an on-camera interview. I said, yeah, here we go. Fame and fortune, baby. But it uh, didn't quite turn out the way I planned. I didn't get on the show, and the interview changed my life completely. They asked me things like, Chris, if you get on the show and you come back a fit man, are you going to be able to tell those same jokes, or will it just seem rude for a fit guy to tell all these fat man jokes? That might be a little rude. And then they said, well, considering that, do you think that they're actually laughing with you, or are they laughing at you? My lips started to quiver a little bit. Then they started asking me questions about what I really thought people saw when they looked at me. And they asked me questions about how I thought about myself that I had never come to question myself before. And I just wept. So I, I went home, and the first thing I did was I went for a walk. I knew I had to do something, so I walked down to the end of the street. And uh, by the time I got to the end of one block, I was sweaty. I was out of breath. My ankles, my feet were killing me. I turned around to go back home, and it was all uphill. 
I just couldn't do it, you know. And I, I started praying right then. I said, God, I have tried everything. Nothing is working. You have to make this easy for me because obviously I can't do anything about it. It's kind of a miracle because at that point, it came into my mind, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so I, I made it home, and I, I went inside, and I don't know why to this day. First thing I did was I got on Facebook, and I told my friends exactly how much I weighed and that I was needing to do something with my life. And immediately, dozens of people from around the country were saying, Chris, you know, you can do this. And they gave me encouragement. They gave me tips. They gave me nutrition advice. They gave me exercise advice. And it was all simple little things that I thought I could do. So I started doing them. It was like God sent angels to rescue me. Ever since that day, I've been losing weight. Another thing that's helped me is uh, right here in the D.C. area over at Annandale, there's this Pastor Steve Reynolds at Capital Baptist Church. He has a program called Bod for God, Losing to Live. And it's a faith-based plan to change your lifestyle. It's a proven way to lose weight and uh, keep it off. So it's been wonderful for me. And we're going to bring that to Grace Church. I'll be out front if you guys want to talk later. Um, If you're interested in it, want to know anything about it, we're going to start next week. So I do want to tell you one thing, though. If my life has been easy and the burden has been light, this weight just seems to come off. It's kind of an automatic thing. And I'd like to share that with anybody that'd like to listen. If you want to lose 50 pounds, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, whatever, come see me. I found that focusing on what God can do instead of what I can't do has made all the difference. Thank you. God bless you, and happy Easter. He's a comedian. He's from Iowa. We used to call him Iowa's biggest comedian. We can't do that anymore after all this weight loss. He's fantastic, and so we really appreciate you sharing that, Chris. Uh, if for anything else, you should stop by to see him because he's an awesome person just to kind of talk to and extraordinarily funny and insightful. Thank you for sharing very much. We're looking forward to the kickoff of that next week. Okay, happy Easter. Happy Easter. It's wonderful to see you today, and... Uh, I know some of us are a little more dressed up today, so that's wonderful to see as well. We are going to the uh, second part of a message that started last week called Sunday. So you might say, hey, wasn't here last week. You can go online, listen to the first part of it. It's called, And They Lived Happily Ever After. We're talking about a little bit about fairy tales. Why do we have fairy tales? What's up with fairy tales? What, we've had them for so long, they're, they're around. And what we said last week is we have like a memory trace of the Garden of Eden, of paradise. It's in our minds. That's why we can't get rid of this idea in all cultures, all around the world for so many, many, many years, that there is a garden, there is a paradise. It exists, and we feel it on the inside of us. It's like a memory trace. Some of us are here this morning, and we feel under pressure. We feel pressured. Like we feel if If I don't accomplish this in my life, right here, right now, I'm going to, for all of eternity, regret it. Like, I'm going to regret it when I get to paradise. If I don't travel to this place, or reach this amount of success, or do this thing, or get married, or have kids, or whatever it might be, I will live the rest of my life with regret. I just want to say from the scriptures and from understanding what paradise, what, what, what the garden is all about, that is in our hearts and our minds, that we're going to return there as we talked about last week, that you don't have to worry about that because there's no regrets. You can just like totally stop worrying about missing out 
There are no regrets in paradise. The Bible is painstakingly clear on that. And I know many of us are worried about that. Oh, man, if I don't do this, I don't, if I don't make it here, stop worrying about that. Matthew 28 records for us the story of Easter morning. It's on your uh, back of your blue program. All right, it's always in your Bible. Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, this is powerful. Like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've talked about the power that it had in the church of book of Acts. We've talked about how it turned the disciples around. We talked about Paul's life, how it was such a powerful thing in all of these people's lives. And here we read it was so powerful, like the whole earth shook under its power. And here's what I've been thinking about this Easter season. I've been thinking about what Paul says in Philippians chapter three, verse number 10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And the word that he uses there for know, I want to know, is I want to have a personal knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. I've been thinking about this in my own life. Here's my deal. I have a lot of head knowledge about the resurrection of Jesus Christ at this point. And for many of you, the story I just read, you're like, thanks for reading that. I've heard it a million times before. That's awesome. It's good head. But does it move you? And when Paul says, I want to know Jesus Christ personally and the power of his resurrection, I'm thinking to myself, man, you, you look like you, you, you have this personal, powerful experience of Jesus. I mean, the way you're living your life, I mean, my goodness, come on, man. You seem like you are just completely sold out, that the resurrection has t- totally had a powerful impact on your life. And if you're still wanting more of that power, where does that leave me? Here's what I find about myself. I have a lot of head knowledge. I don't have much passion. There's not much power about the resurrection. Like I don't come bounding uh, out of my bed on Easter Sunday morning and say, "Woo!" you know, that's not happening. Why is that not happening? So what I want to talk about just briefly this morning is we're going to do some head head stuff, head knowledge. You know, last week we went through those things. I listed them for you. There's four things conspicuously missing, like a detective, what's missing from the scene of the crime. And we don't have a debate, which was odd. And we don't have men or a context. Or we don't have a, a veneration of a tomb. We don't have that. And we'll talk about seven things that we do have. And then I want to talk to you really about how, if you're anything like me, and I'm guessing some of you are, you have the head knowledge, but it's not in your heart. You're not bursting with passion over the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does Paul say that we can experience that? How can that happen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. This very special of days that we remember Jesus Christ, how you were raised from the dead and how that has changed the world. Not only has it changed this world, it's changed eternity. It is cosmically powerful. Lord, how can we experience in a personal way the power of your resurrection in our lives? In Christ's name, amen. All right, here's seven things, really briefly, that we do have. Yes, we have the prophecies. 
I listed two for you on your sheet right there. Two very, very clearly where we have prophecies of hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the dead. We have these prophecies that he's going to rise from the dead. We have this. Yes, we have those. Yes, we have Jesus' predictions, his own predictions. Three times in the Gospel of Mark pretty much says the exact same thing. I'll read one of those times, Jesus. Then Jesus is speaking here. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus says this over and over again. So he's preparing us. He's preparing them. We're going to rise. Third thing. Yes, we have a genuine death. Some people have said, well, I'm not sure. Maybe Jesus Christ didn't really die on that cross. And that's why, you know, he's not in the tomb. Well, that's a pretty big stretch because the beating that they gave Jesus. Now, I don't know how you feel about Mel Gibson. Some of you love him. Some of you can't stand him. And some of you just think he's completely wacky. But the guy can sure tell a story on the screen, can he? My, my goodness. And when he did that movie about the passion of the Christ, that was about as accurate a historical representation of the beating that Jesus Christ took. I couldn't even watch it. I had to turn my head away. It's powerful. But that's what he went through. Many men died from the beating alone, much less making it to the cross. That's what he went through. So he goes through the beating, then he gets nailed to a cross, and then they take a spear and they run it up into him and pierce his heart with it, right? And then a professional executioner, a professional Roman executioner, pronounces him dead. Now, let me tell you how the Roman army works. Here's how the Roman. So if you mess up on your job, we kill you. So there's tremendous motivation to get it right. Right? And so this guy has done this over and over again. He's very motivated. I got to get this right. Oh, yeah, he's dead. Are you sure? I'm sure. I am sure as I'm standing here. He's dead. He's dead. And then you know what they do after that? They take him down. And here's the thing. Sometimes you read over you, Joseph Arimathea, and they take all these linen, and they wrap them up, you know, like a mummy. Do you know those linens weighed about 100 pounds filled with oils and spices? If he would have survived the beating, the nailing, the spear, the pronouncement, now he's going to be suffocated. He's dead. He's as dead as dead can be. We have a genuine death. Next thing is, yes, we have the names. So we're acting like detective or an investigative reporter here. What's very interesting is uh, at different places of the Bible, I gave you 1 Corinthians 15 as one of them, we have the naming of names. You ever watch a detective show or something and they'll say, okay, can you give me a name? Can you give me a name? Of somebody who's so what we see in the scriptures is we don't see the scriptures saying, you know what, there are these people and they saw the resurrected Jesus. It's like, well, can you tell me who? Well, I'm not going to tell you who, but there's people out there that exist. That's not what the scriptures do. They say, here's this person and this person, and this person, and they're still alive. You can go and you can go and see them right now when it was written. You can do that. So we have the names. Right. Here's the thing, uh, two things that really get me a lot. First of all, is this yes, we have the family. I love the fact that the Bible speaks with tremendous candor. You know what it says in Mark chapter 3? It says that Jesus' mother and brothers, his own family, come to get him one day during his ministry because this, they had thought he was out of his mind. He was out of his mind. He was preaching that he was the Christ. He was preaching that he was the Messiah. And his family's like, Man, are you, you, you need to back down off of that, Jesus. He's out of his mind. Tremendous candor. John chapter 7, verse number 5 says, his own brothers don't believe in him. 
now something happens. Because after the resurrection of Christ and his ascension, we see, we see in the scriptures that James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's pastoring the church. And in Acts chapter 15, during the, the first and most famous church council ever, we see that James, his brother, is conducting that. He's officiating at that. And then we see that he writes a New Testament book. Anybody want to venture a guess what the name of the book is that James writes? Book of James. Okay. So he's got his brother James who believed. So what took place? He, his brothers didn't believe him. They do believe in him. What stands in between there? The resurrection of Jesus Christ stands in between all that. How about his brother Jude? Did his brother Jude believe in him? His brother Jude writes the New Testament book of Jude. How about his mother Mary? His mother Mary believe in him? We see her in Acts chapter 1 after the ascension of Jesus Christ. She's in the upper room with the rest of the disciples and she's praying to Jesus and she's worshiping Jesus. What stood in between all of that? The resurrection. Here's one other thing. Yes, we have a change in worship. Now, this is really important, and it's important that you look at this, not as a 21st century American. To be a good investigator, to be somebody who is a good interpreter of the Bible, you must go back to the time and place to be contextual and understand the things the way they would understand them. So you need to become, at this moment, a first century Jewish person. How did they look at this? There was a change in worship. They changed the day of their worship, and they changed the focus of their worship. And here's the thing. They had been worshiping God on Saturday for thousands of years. I don't know about you, but I have trouble changing things that I've been doing for thousands of minutes. But when we're talking about that, that's a long track record, thousands of years. And all of a sudden, you know, something happens and they go, these devout Jewish people go from worshiping on a Saturday to worshiping on a Sunday. What stands in between that switch? the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the end of that first century, Sunday is now called the Lord's Day, Revelation chapter 1. It's now called the Lord's Day, and they begin to worship God on Sunday. How about the, how about the change in their focus of worship? They change the focus of their worship? Yes, they do. And here's the thing. They begin to worship Jesus Christ. This is huge, everybody. They just don't willy-nilly start worshiping Jesus. Oh, you say you're the Messiah? Well, how about we bow down and worship you? They would not do that. That was blasphemous. That was the worst thing they could ever possibly do. They would never do that. And yet we see them after the resurrection of Jesus Christ bowing down and worshiping Jesus. That is absolutely huge. Final thing, just a final piece of fact. Yes, we have the historians. I've listed some of them there for you on your sheet. Let me just read to you from Josephus, who is a Jewish historian. So this is outside of the Bible. This is in his uh, history books that he wrote about. This is what he says about Jesus. He, he was born about three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's writing this 30 or 40 years after Jesus has been resurrected. He says, now, there was about this time a wise man, if it's lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold. These and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Now, I want to stop there with the information portion of this. There we go. There's some facts to take a look at. And some of us, that's helpful. I want to talk about 
how can all of that information transfer from information I have in my head to something that's powerful in my heart? How can I experience, as Paul says, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So what's the last piece that's missing? I'd like you to write this down if you're following along. Put the word passion. There has to be a passion. All right, so you got head knowledge. Many of us in this room have a lot of head knowledge. But do we have passion? I'd like to read to you from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, where Paul specifically talks about how this can become very personal in our lives. Look what he says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Who? Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. It's trash. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, here comes his famous statement. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We need to have passion. And Paul is saying, I need to have passion. It needs to be real in my life. And here's the thing. Here's the problem with us. When we talk about being really passionate for Christ, not just having the head knowledge, but being really passionate, for a lot of us, it conjures up some bad images in our minds. We think about somebody who's really passionate. Maybe we think about somebody who's fanatical or a little bit wacky, who walks around with this crazed look in their eyes all the time. And the only answer to every question that they, they, they're asked is Jesus, Jesus. They walk into McDonald's and the person across, how can I help you? Jesus. That's it. And we say, I don't want to become that person. I don't want to be a fanatic. So I'll leave the passion behind. I'll stick with the head knowledge. Okay? And we talked about this last week. We talked about how Arlington County is the most smartest county in the United States of America. So you guys, you're into that. You're into the head knowledge. We covered that. And so you say, you know what? I'll leave the passion aside. I'll settle for the head knowledge, and I'll skip the passion and the heart knowledge. But that's not good enough. What happens in our lives over a period of time is we just kind of get spiritual fat and lazy. That's what happens to me. And after a period of time, I begin just to look at things that, you know, I know that. And I see somebody who's all passionate about Jesus, and it's, it's clear they're experiencing the power of the resurrection. And I say, yeah, I used to be like that, you know, when I was young, you know, before I grew up and I matured. I no longer have that passion. And Paul's saying we can't lose it. We have to have the head knowledge and the heart knowledge. I hear this so often from people within the church who, like me, have been around church all of our lives. We say this all the time. I hear this. Been there, done that. Hey, man, you want to you do something for Jesus? Ah, I've been there, done that. Let somebody else do that. I'm, you know, I'm older. I'm cool. I want to sit on the spiritual porch of my front house in my rocking chair. How do we have it? And Paul tells us how we can have it right here. Just want to make three quick observations. The first one is this. He says he sees everything through the perspective of Christ. Did you catch that? He says, whatever was to my profit, the way I looked at profit before, the way I looked at success before, says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss. A loss for what? For the sake of Jesus Christ. I now look at everything in my life. I look at every situation through the lens, through the perspective of, of Jesus Christ. I look at every setback. I look at every disappointment. I look at every problem 
I look at my enemies. I look at my friends. I look at people. I look at my bitterness. I look at it all through Jesus Christ. So when I'm worried about something, I say, well, what does Jesus think about worry? When I want to gossip about somebody because it just makes me feel good to do that, I say, how does Jesus view that? Or my money, or my job, or my purpose, anything like that. I say, how does Jesus view all these things? It's the first thing he says. He says, you want to have a passion? You have to look at everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing that he says. At the very end of this, he says, I want to share in the sufferings and become like him, Jesus Christ, in his death. Now, look. This is very simple, isn't it? So if I want to experience in a personal way the power, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in my life, for, for resurrection to happen in my life, what has to precede resurrection? You all help me out with that. What has to happen before resurrection? Something has to happen before resurrection. So what is it? Anybody? Something's got to die. I don't like that. I'm happy for something to die in your life. I'm happy for, you know, when I'm struggling with something to say, you know, God, my real problem is this person over here. Why don't you just kill them and I'll live, right? I'm happy for that. That's all cool. You know, when I'm all passionate about Jesus, I'm like, oh, it's man, it's all for Jesus. I'm ready to sacrifice everything, Jesus. Put everything to death. Put all the sin to death in my life. Everything that's all facing you, put it all to death because I want nothing but you. That's what Paul is saying. But you know what? When I get spiritually mature, right, when I'm sitting on the porch, on my rocking chair of my spiritual house. Uh, I no longer am ready to sacrifice. All those sacrifices we read about in the Old Testament, we say, you know, that's over. That's done with. Thank goodness all that blood, it's over. It's done with. You know what? I have news for you. In reality, it's not. We're not sacrificing animals anymore. We're sacrificing the stuff in our life that God brings before us and says, you know what? You need to put that to death. When's the last time you put something to death in your life? So what God has been challenging me with over this Easter season is about putting some things to death in my life and it doesn't feel good and it's a huge sacrifice. So if God brings something to your mind today in this service, are you like, yes, I'm ready to put that to death? This is what Paul is saying. When we put something to death, we can experience resurrection. And if you don't put something to death, it's impossible, right? It's logically impossible to experience resurrection. Final thing that he says here. He says this. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. How? As my Lord. I consider everything a loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ. How? He doesn't say Savior here. Interesting. I'm good with Jesus being my Savior. I'm like, I'm really cool with that. That's awesome. Go to heaven, paradise, eternal life. Beautiful. I have a problem with the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to be honest with you. I'm sure that many of you are completely okay with that. But I have a problem with the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my own life. That he is my true king. I love the the video the music team did this morning. Famous sermon from S.M. Lockridge. Some of you recognized it. Famous, famous sermon. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. All right? Jesus being my Savior, him being my Lord, is not. Here's what the Apostle Paul says at a number of different points in his writings. I'll give you one of them. 1 Corinthians 6.20. He says, you are not your own. 
independent, freedom-loving Americans, we are not our own. Then he goes on and says this, we have been bought with a price. We have an owner, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he owns you. Now, what's happening on the inside of you as I'm saying that? You're bristling. We don't like that. That's not good. The Lordship of Jesus Christ, he owns me. He owns me. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Jesus Christ in the scriptures presents himself, everybody, as the true king. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't speak like anything else but a king, doesn't he? So we read him in the scriptures. How does he talk to us? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. He's not talking like a consultant, is he? He's not talking about like an advisor where you sit across the table and say, hey, I have some suggestions for you. And then they make their suggestions like, okay, thank you very much. Go ahead, advisor. Go ahead. Bye-bye. See you later. I'll now thank you for your suggestion. I'll figure out what I'm going to do. He doesn't talk that way. He talks like a king. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. It's very narrow. It's very powerful. It's very clear. Jesus Christ talks like a king. He doesn't talk like an advisor. But I like to treat him like an advisor. Thank you, Jesus, for your opinion. I'll make my own decisions now. I'll do what I, I do what I, I, I think. Thank you. But I appreciate you telling me what I should do, you know, about this person who offended me. But I will handle this situation my own way. He's an advisor, not Lord. But the scripture says he's king of kings and Lord of lords, and it presents us to us all over the place. Right? So we're told in the book of Revelation, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. When Pilate says to him, Jesus... Are you a king? Jesus says what? Yes, I am. I'm the king. Acts chapter 1. What, what do kings do? They ascend their throne. What does Jesus do in Acts chapter 1, everybody? He ascends. It's, it's everywhere. It's in his language. It's in the symbolism. The imagery is clear and it's powerful. He's king. Now, Psalm chapter 2 is one of the most often quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. We see Psalm 2 quoted repeatedly in the New Testament church. What's the psalm about? It's about the true king. It says there's a true king. Just like we know it's a memory trace on us, we know there's a paradise, and that's why we write fairy tales, right? We know there's a true king. That's why we write about heroes all the time. We're looking for a hero. We're looking for a true king. We're looking for a king who will finally do the right thing, aren't we? So we have all these stories about the knight in shining armor, or 007, or Rambo, Right? Somebody who comes in and saves the day and does the right thing. The right thing. But the problem with kings and the long history of kings that we have in, in the world is they have a very bad track record, don't they? So what do the kings of the world do to us when they, get, when they come to power? We've had some good ones, but by and large, almost percentage-wise, almost all of them are very bad. They oppress us. They disappoint us. They don't serve us. They serve themselves. And so we're afraid of the king. And so Psalm chapter 2 says there's a true king. And we'll never get away from this. Because inside of our hearts, we know, we long, we feel it. There is this memory trace that there is a true king out there somewhere. And it says there is a true king. But then it goes on to say, Psalm 2 verse number 3 says, You hate the king because his yoke is on you. You know what the yoke is symbolic of in scripture? The yoke is symbolic of ownership. Ownership. The king owns you. 
you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. He's not your advisor. He's not your consultant. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He says jump. You say how high. He is the king. Presents it that way. And says we hate the king. And we want to shake off. We want to shake off the king and his yoke from us. Now, years ago, uh, when I was in Bible college, I was married when I was still in Bible college. And one day I'm with a bunch of my buddies, basketball buddies, and uh, we were just talking about all kinds of stuff. And one of the guys who we were with was also married. He was uh, already married. And he was, he was recanting to us the story of when he got married, when he first met and married his wife. And so he met her in high school. And he said he saw her like she was a new student or something like that. I remember him saying she's new. And he saw her. He laid his eyes on her. He saw her. And he said the first thought that came to my mind was, I own you. So he went to her and he, ta- he told her that. You know, I, I own you. You're mine. I'm taking you. Taking you. And they had a wonderful courtship and they got married. So he told this story. And I'm thinking to myself, I like that. That sounds good. I all. I was very young and very stupid. I like that. That just sounds so good. I own you. I said, man, when I get home, I'm going to say that to Krista. Krista, we've been married about six months. I own you. So I I got home, everybody. Get home, and she's there, and big hug and big kiss, and her face is just lit up. You know, we're still newlyweds, and she's just so happy, big smile on her face. And I said, baby, I own you. The smile went away. <laughs> Hands came off me. And she jumps back. She said, what did you say? <laughs> what did you just say to me? And I said, um, I said, I, I owe you. I owe you. I, I owe you an apology. I'm late. I should have called. I said, I was owed. She said, oh, okay. It sounded like you said, I own you. I said, <laughs> stupid. Who? Who would be so stupid to say that? Definitely not me. I would never say that. We bristle at that because the kings of the earth, they own us and they oppress us and they mistreat us and it does not turn out for our best. So when Jesus comes along and he says, I bought you with the price. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Psalm 2 says, you should submit to the king. You should serve the king. You should pay homage to the king. He should be your true king. We say, I don't want that. Here's the problem. If we do not want that, if we reject and throw off the yoke of the true king, then the true king does not fight for us. Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is recanting the story when the children of Israel are on the edge of the promised land. And he says this, he over and over again, he's saying, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. Who is Lord, your king, the Lord, your God. He brought you right up to the edge, right to the edge of the promised land, ready to take you into where you really want to go. But you rejected his lordship. And if you would not have rejected his lordship, what he would have done, if he would have been your king and your true Lord, he would have gone in front of you and he would have fought for you. He would have fought for you. And some of us this morning, we are so tired of fighting for our jobs. We are so tired of fighting for our marriage or fighting to get married. And the problem isn't somebody else. The problem is with us. 
We are the king of our own lives, and Jesus is our consultant. But if we'll step out of the way, he'll fight for us. See, the good news about Jesus Christ is when we serve him, he fights for us. He says, I didn't come to be served myself. I came to serve you. He's not like the kings of the earth. He will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He will never oppress you. The Bible says he didn't come to oppress us. He came to set captives free. If you're sick and tired this morning of fighting for yourself, for your family, for your kids, for your marriage, for the desire to get married, if you're tired of doing it your own way, then get out of the way and let Jesus Christ be the King of kings and the Lord of lords and let all heaven and all of its power come down with that power and fight for you. There's a great story, and I'll end with this. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's about Elisha. Elisha, this prophet who was totally sold out to God. I mean, it is so clear that God is his God and his Lord of his life. And there was a king of a foreign country who hated Elisha. And he sent an overwhelming force of his army. We're going to kill this boy. We are going to wipe him off the face of this earth. And they arrive in the middle of the night and they surround this house, right, where Elisha is. This is such an awesome story. And his servant goes out early in the morning and he opens the door and he's, uh, uh uh-oh, (laughs) uh-oh. We have a problem, and he's scared to death, and he sees this overwhelming force lined up against him. And he runs back, and Elisha says, man, we are dead. We have a problem. And Elisha, who God is his king, says, Almighty God, would you open my servant's eyes and let him see the truth? And what he saw is in the hills surrounding that army were the armies of heaven with a larger force with an overwhelming force there ready to fight for him. And he had victory. Get out of God's way. If you are sick and tired of fighting for the stuff in your life, put down that mantle in your own life and allow Jesus Christ to be king until you allow him to be the true king of your life. You're impeding him from fighting for you. I want to end. The music team's going to come uh, because we're going to end by singing In Christ Alone. And In Christ Alone does a magnificent job of laying out the points of what I'm trying to share from the scripture this morning in a much better way than I could ever do. So I just want to, I want to read this to you uh, very briefly and then we're going to sing. So you guys can come on up. Here's what it says. And we'll sing this in just a second. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of men can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. If you are sick and tired of fighting this on your own, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you during this final song or after the song, our prayer team is going to be over there. Go over there, say to them, I'm tired of fighting this on my own. 
Jesus is my Savior. Now I want him to be my king. I want him to come in, and I want to sweep in with an overwhelming force. I'm tired of fighting this on my own. I want him to fight for me. I'm getting out of his way so he can fight for me. Let's pray. Lord, God, I pray that you would just, Lord, descend upon us here in these next few moments because some of us are so worn out of fighting for ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us, please, to step aside so that you can come down and fight for us that we might have victory in the name of Jesus Christ, our true King. Amen.